Hi folks, this is Jack Spiergo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 12th, 2015. This is episode 1658 of the Survival Podcast. And you'll probably be listening to this show a bit later in the day if you're one of those people that downloads it as soon as it's available because I'm getting a late start. It's almost 1 o'clock before I get started today. But hey, man, there's a lot of content that went out today. A new Duck Chronicles came out. Season 2, Episode 9 of the Duck Chronicles was just released. Uh, you can learn more about that at 9mile.farm. That's where all the Duck Chronicles are being released now. And click on the blog over there and you'll be able to see Episode 9. What's cool about that is I built a brand new system for making sunflower sprouts for the ducks. And I think a lot of you that are doing homesteading stuff that want to grow fodder for your animals can really benefit from seeing it. If you're growing stuff for a dozen or so birds, I don't think you need to go past my bucket system. But with adding 60 new birds and uh, adding quail, I realized that my you know bucket of sprouts every day doesn't go as far as it used to. And uh, so I decided to double production. And instead of doing a double bucket system, I put together a pretty cool system using a stainless steel rack, uh, two $3 sprinklers from Lowe's, Uh, some concrete mixing trays, and a few other things. And I kind of show you how to do that. Episode 9 of the Duck Chronicles for Season 2, 9mile.farm to learn more about that. I uh, just wanted to kind of throw that out for you. I also put out information on a workshop with Daniel Salatin, son of uh, renegade uh, lunatic farmer Joel Salatin in Louisiana with the new Mike Cornwell uh, from the TSP blog. He's one of our biggest commenters there. Really awesome guy. That went out today. Along with that, um, I also put out information for group rate for the hotel. For those of you that are coming to the November workshop, which we are right at 30 days away from right now. It's going to sneak up on us. Dorothy and I began cooking. She's vacuum sealing pork roast that I cooked yesterday as we speak. We also made uh, a couple hundred meatballs yesterday. I fried them. She rolled them. That's the way we do that. So we have a lot going on. That's why I'm a little bit later in the show, uh, getting the show started, uh, the normal for you guys. But uh, I got a good one for you today, and I'm even going to give myself a very challenging, perplexing problem in the opening segment today. Before that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, Five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, 
That's why they call him Sawtack. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtack.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtack, get into your MSB account, click on benefits, and look up Sawtack and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, Sawtack.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have the Swedish Army Walks on Water. You know, to give you a spoiler there, they actually walked on ice, but it's a cool segment. You may want to read it at tspwiki.com, because I'm going to read the second one that Alex has for us today. Uh, we have the first Roosevelt is born in America. Nicholas von Roosevelt, later changed to Nicholas Roosevelt, is born this year in New Amsterdam, which is modern-day New York. He's the fourth great-grandfather of Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's probably the fifth of Franklin, anyway. Nicholas will also be the first Roosevelt to hold public office. He'll become an alderman. According to Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography, the Roosevelts came to America in the steerage of a sailing ship. Steerage usually means... They're like a sack, a, sack, a sack of sand. Your body is there to provide weight, so it's easier for the pilot to steer the ship. They are Dutch Calvinists and will remain on Manhattan Island for the next seven generations. Teddy Roosevelt is where we get the teddy bear, which is named after him. He described his family on the Calvinist night as being very stark. I suppose his ancestors weren't a lot of laughs. He tells the story of his great-grandfather, who, after attending church service as a boy, Hopped on a wild pig. Wild pigs wandered in New York at the time. The pig was quite unhappy having the boy riding him and went hog wild through the congregation. His great-grandfather received a very stern lecture for his disruptive behavior. Of course, the Roosevelt's have been quite disruptive to American politics. Teddy ushered in the progressive era, which promoted such horrors as eugenics, massive government regulation, and our progressive school system. FDR gave a social security pyramid scheme. Nine members of the Supreme Court instead of seven. He packed the court with his cronies by increasing the number of court justices. Of course, it was all done with the best of intentions. The progressive movement began as an anti-government corruption movement and direct democracy. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Dutch proverb. Yeah, um, so like, I have different feelings about Teddy than I do Franklin Roosevelt. I think Franklin Roosevelt was an avowed socialist. Um, I think that a tremendous amount of the problems in this country go back to FDR. I really do. Uh, I think that our being set up for eventual bankruptcy is a large part due to many of the programs ushered in under Franklin Roosevelt. I don't actually have anything really noble or good to say about FDR other than he did preside over the nation during the Second World War, and we were able to become victorious in that, though I don't know how much a president gets credit for that. I'd say a later president, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, gets a hell of a lot more credit for victory in World War II uh, than Franklin Roosevelt does, even though he was president during most of the war. Um, this is a guy that, you know, had such a stranglehold on the country uh, that the laws were changed to prevent anybody from ever doing that as president again. He was the first president to serve more than two terms. Everybody else kind of followed Washington's example and had some level of self-control, and FDR didn't. Teddy, on the other hand, is a guy that did a lot of bad and a lot of good. Uh, we wouldn't have a national park system today without Teddy Roosevelt. I know as an anarchist, she's like, Jack, we shouldn't have a national park system. But the government's going to do anything. 
Okay, um, setting aside certain lands as, as being accessible to all would be one of the few things that you'd think you'd be okay with. Is, is, is you know, as an anarchist, unhappy with the fact there's a state in the first place. You know, if we, if we stuck to the building roads and bridges and, and setting up parks, I, I think we'd have a much more free society if that's all government did. Um, Teddy also brought an eye to a lot of things. There were a lot of uh, problems with environmental issues that were becoming far worse. And there were a lot of animals that I think would have gone extinct if not for the efforts made by Teddy Roosevelt. So that's good. But yeah, we save the animals and kill people because they're not smart enough. Yeah. See, the reason I selected this one for today is because I want to tell you something that most Americans do not know. Um, the roots of the Nazis' evil are in eugenics. Eugenics is the concept that certain people just shouldn't reproduce. That's, that's the most mild form of it. And a tenet of eugenics was that certain people should not reproduce and should not be allowed to reproduce, so we should have forced sterilizations. Sooner or later, this leads to things like, well, that person just would be better off dead, so let's put them to sleep. But there's only, to my knowledge, one nation... Um, other than Germany, that took eugenics far enough to actually do forced sterilizations, and that was, dun-dun-dun, the United States of America. In fact, in the early 1900s, prior to World War I, German doctors came to America to learn about eugenics from us, and we were actually uh, basically noted by the Germans as having the stones to do it, to be the first nation to be a pioneer in eugenics. And you have to ask yourself why a nation built on freedom and liberty would embrace such a horrible thing. That's because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And there's a word in here that really drives that home. And that word is Alex's last word before the proverb, direct democracy. Democracies are the most onerous forms of government there are. If you have a dictatorship, the 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 government is as bad as the dictator. You could get a good one. If you have a direct democracy where the majority rules, then you are the lowest common denominator of the majority. 1% difference in opinion swings control from 51% over 49. And that means that if the will of the people can be shaped then the direction of the nation can be completely controlled. And the closer a nation moves toward direct democracy, the more easy it is for the people in power that have money to control the nation. What is the solution? We should have dictatorships or monarchies? No. No. The solution would be, well, a stateless society. We can't do that right now. I know. So the goal should be to move towards it to remove every single power from government that's not absolutely essential to mankind's existence and safety at the current time. When I say safety, I mean relative safety. I don't mean trying to prevent everything. I don't mean trying to find people because they didn't paint the right color yellow on the curb leading up to the doorstep of their restaurant. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, if you go to certain parts of the world where there is lawlessness, you'll see what I mean. I'll leave it at that. And for now... The best we can do is strive for complete freedom. And that's why I think anything less than attempting to go that far 
is not enough to drag us out of the pit we're in. My take by Jack Spearco. Next up, let's take a look at or remind you guys anyway about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, you want to help support this show and the work that we do here? Uh, join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more about that. And otherwise, I'll let that go. Except I'm going to tell you that I'm going to have a really awesome new discount partner for you guys in the MSB. Tomorrow or Wednesday, I'll get it added to the back and tell you who it is. But I'll just tell you they were recently a show guest, and the discount is pretty dang good. I'm not talking 5%. I'm not talking 10%. I'm not talking 15%. I'm talking 20% off everything that that guest sells. Some of you probably know who it is already. I mean, very recent guests, by the way. Uh, anyway, stay tuned tomorrow for more of that. Let's go ahead and uh, get into... Uh, the main topic of today's show, which is your feedback for me. This one actually came from Facebook. And it's about the Okinawan diet. And not the Okinawan diet of today, but the Okinawan diet of, that was traditionally Okinawan and the life expectancy that it resulted in. And this has something in it for us to consider in the world of paleo. And it was actually presented to me as, hey, does this mean that paleo is wrong? I don't mean think that it means paleo is wrong, but I think it means that maybe some people don't do paleo to the optimum level that could be done. And I think it also depends on your goals and your choices in life and a lot of other things. This is a deep topic. Rather than try to tell you what it says, I'm just going to play the audio of the video. There will be a link in today's show notes to the blog that it's posted on where you can watch the video, uh, which does have some useful visual aids, but I can't make that work in audio for you. But I think you'll get the gist of it here. And I'll be back after it to uh, to give you my thoughts on it. And again, I'm telling you that I'm playing this and I'm responding to it because it does present challenges. And I think if we're not willing to look at truly challenging facts, then we're not willing to learn. Here we go. The dietary guidelines recommend that we try to choose meals or snacks that are high in nutrients but lower in calories to reduce the risk of chronic disease. By this measure, the healthiest foods on the planet, the most nutrient-dense, are vegetables, containing the most nutrient bang for our caloric buck. So what would happen if a population centered their entire diet around vegetables? They might end up living among the longest lives in the world. Of course, anytime you hear about long-living populations, you have to make sure it's validated, as it may be hard to find birth certificates from the 1890s. But validation studies suggest that, indeed, they really do live that long. The traditional diet in Okinawa is based on vegetables, beans, and other plants. I'm used to seeing the Okinawan diet represented like this, the base being vegetables, beans, and grains, but a substantial contribution from fish and other meat. But a more accurate representation would be this. If you look at their actual dietary intake, we know what they're eating from the U.S. National Archives because the U.S. military ran Okinawa until it was given back to Japanese, uh, to Japan in uh, 72. And if you look at the traditional diets of more than 2,000 Okinawans, this is how it breaks down. Only 1% of their diet was fish. Less than 1% of their diet was meat. And same with eggs and dairy. So it was more than 96% plant-based. And more than 90% whole food plant-based. Very few processed foods either. And not just whole food plant-based, but most of their diet was vegetables. And one vegetable in particular, sweet potatoes. The Okinawan diet was centered around purple and orange sweet potatoes. How delicious is that? Could have been bitter gourd or soursop, but no, sweet potatoes. 
So, 90 plus percent whole food plant-based makes it a highly anti-inflammatory diet, makes it a highly antioxidant diet. If you measure the level of oxidized fat within their system, there's compelling evidence of less free radical damage. Maybe they're just genetically have better antioxidant enzymes or something? No. Their antioxidant enzyme activity is the same. It's all the extra antioxidants they're getting from their diet that may be making the difference. Most of their diet is vegetables. So, 8 to 12 times fewer heart disease deaths than the U.S. You can see they ran out of room for the graph for our death rate. 2 to 3 times fewer colon cancer deaths. Seven times fewer prostate cancer deaths and five and a half times lower risk of dying from breast cancer. Some of this protection may be because they're only eating about 1,800 calories a day, but they were actually eating a greater mass of food, but the whole plant foods are just calorically dilute. There's also a cultural norm not to stuff oneself. The plant-based nature of the diet may trump the caloric restriction, though, since the one population that lives even longer than the Okinawa Japanese don't just eat a 98% meat-free diet, they eat 100% meat-free. The Adventist vegetarians in California, with perhaps the highest life expectancy of any formally described population. Adventist vegetarian men and women live to be about 83 and 86, comparable to Okinawan women, but better than Okinawan men. The best of the best were Adventist vegetarians who had healthy lifestyles too, like being exercising non-smokers. 87 and nearly 90 on average. Uh, that's like 10 to 14 years longer than the general population. 10 to 14 extra years on this earth from simple lifestyle choices. And this is happening now in modern times, whereas Okinawan longevity is now a thing of the past. Okinawa now hosts more than a dozen KFCs. Their saturated fat tripled. They went from eating essentially no cholesterol to a few Big Macs worth, tripled their sodium, and are now just as potassium deficient as Americans, getting less than half of the recommended minimum daily intake of 4,700 milligrams a day. In two generations, Okinawans have gone from the leanest Japanese to the fattest. As a consequence... There's been a resurgence of interest from public health professionals in getting Okinawans to eat the Okinawan diet, too. Well, the person that actually presented this to me basically said, see, paleo is bullshit, it doesn't work, and this is the, the now the definitive thing because one person had made an observation of longevity, and now we should just throw out everything else we know, and everybody should live on vegetables. Well, hold on. Let's let's start out with a better understanding of what Okinawans in traditional diet didn't eat. Um, they didn't eat grain. They didn't eat rice, and they ate well. They ate very little grain, very little rice, and a little bit more but very little beans, legumes. So if we just start to examine what does paleo say about grain, it says no. <laughs> what, what does it say about rice? Pretty much no. And what does it say about legumes? It says either no or extreme moderation. So we actually have a, a commonality there. So 
you can't look at just, well, this was eliminated. What is the totality that was eliminated? So that's just an immediate observation. It doesn't invalidate anything you just heard. I'm not saying that means I'm right. That just means that we need to look at that too. That we need to understand that those things have a huge role in damage to the body because one of the things, and I've looked at some other Centurion studies on um, Okinawans in traditional diet and traditional lifestyle that, that's not present in, in very high amounts in their blood is an, a, an amino acid called homocysteine. Homocysteine is a toxic amino acid that has a lot more to do, this is medical fact, you can look it up if you doubt me, has a lot more to do with arterial sclerosis, a.k.a. hardening of the arteries, etc., than cholesterol does. Cholesterol is needed by every bit of connective tissue uh, in, in the body and many other cellular needs as well, but specifically with connective tissue like your joints and your ligaments and your, your cartilage, uh, cholesterol is, is absolutely essential to, to, to those things being healthy. Homocysteine is this like jagged little pill going through your body, causes scarring on the arteries, and then cholesterol is a reparative tool the body uses. It, think of it like bees use propolis to seal up a hive. Your body uses cholesterol to seal up damage to any cellular walls. So your body begins to apply cholesterol like a patch to that damaged artery, and then you have a place for more to stick, and it builds up more and more over time as greater and greater damage is done. You could take a newborn child, or not a newborn child, say a, a eight-year-old child, and have them drink a glass of Crisco, and it would do almost nothing to his arterial walls because they're so smooth, all that fat would just slide away and eventually he'd have a bad day on the, on the pot, but it wouldn't do anything to his actual uh, problem as far as the arterial walls is related to cholesterol buildup or fat buildup. So why is that important? Why is the homocysteine thing important? Well, one of the major ways that we create abundant homocysteine in our diets is highly processed food and grains and legumes cause this as well, elevated homocysteine levels. Now, the other thing that helps with homocysteine levels is B12. Uh, if you have lots of B12, you, you kind of push away, you're, 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 you're pushed down the homocysteine levels. And if you have high homocysteine levels, it becomes eventually the case that, that older people have a hard time absorbing B12. So what is, what is probably the best source of B12 on planet Earth? Of course, that would be meats, and specifically organ meats like livers. So could it be that the small amounts of fish and meat that these people were consuming, uh, coupled with the lack of these other things, resulted in lower homocysteine levels and some level of, of, of medication, I guess you would call it, against uh, the buildup of homocysteine, because you weren't bringing lots more in, you're doing something to help push it down. And... One of the biggest problems that the elderly have is a condition called pernicious anemia. As you can see, I'm more than a redneck duck farmer when it comes right down to it. But pernicious anemia is the inability of the body to absorb B12. And then the homocysteine levels just go nuts, and we get all kinds of problems. And that's why many elderly patients with a simple B12 shot feel better. So if we use foods that are naturally abundant in B12, and we eat those our entire life, we may be able to help push that back. So that's the, all that has to be considered in there as well. The next thing I want to talk about is that the primary dietary base that these people were using is what? Sweet potatoes, orange and purple. And knowing a little bit about Okinawa, I can tell you the purple are more abundant and more commonly used, and they are 
just powerhouses of antioxidants. I mean, they are like unbelievably dense in, in, in antioxidants, specifically an antioxidant known as anthocyan. And this is one of the most incredible dietary antioxidants that you can get into your body. And purple sweet potatoes do something that almost no other vegetable does. Most vegetables concentrate their nutrient density in the skin or the outer surface. You know, if you were a kid, you remember your dad telling you, eat the potato of the, of the baked potato because all the, all the good stuff's there. Not wrong. Purple sweet potatoes actually concentrate anthocyanin and other high-quality antioxidants in the flesh, more so than the skin. And they're also thin-skinned, so they're generally go ahead and you consume a purple sweet potato with this skin as well, so they're getting the total package. Then the other dietary base, of course, is orange sweet potatoes, which are massively high in large amounts of beta-carotene. So having a diet that has a lot of meat in it doesn't preclude us from getting all of those things. In fact, a good primal paleo-style diet would include meat, lots of vegetables, and if we're going to use a tuber, the majority of people that teach the paleo-primal style of life say to eat what? Sweet potatoes. So, The next thing is caloric restriction. There's enough scientific evidence to show that caloric restriction does work. However, how many people are actually going to willfully engage in caloric restriction? Because I'm not talking about, you know, your, your, your 1600 calorie diet for men and 1250 calorie diet for women. No, I'm talking about ex extensive caloric restriction to where people actually look underweight. People that, that, that practice that style of life do have longer lives. Um, than the general population. And remember that. We're also comparing it to the general population, not everybody. Okay? And saying one is longer than the other, well, is there a year of difference in there? Is there two years? And what's the totality of the rest of life? And have people been, in, in modern times, living a certain way long enough to actually make a long-term study viable? So I would say that we haven't had people really living the primal paleo style of life uh, in earnest Since the paleo-primal period, this is a very new dietary pattern. So we can't really compare apples to apples there, but caloric restriction does work. Now, what is a key component in the primal paleo lifestyle? Intermittent fasting. So we're not actually restricting the total daily caloric yield, but we are restricting the caloric intake for a period of time during the day. So I actually see a lot of things. It's not the same, but a lot of similarities here. Here. I also would tell you that we have to look at the total lifestyle and the, the role that stress has on, on a person. So these people are eating this traditional Okinawan diet. Why were they doing it? Were they doing it because somebody made them? Were they doing it because they all went to the uh, traditional Okinawan diet seminar and somebody told them to live this way and then they did and it worked? Or were they living this way because it was their lifestyle? And, and the answer is, of course, prior to World War II, where most of this has its roots, and if they've gone away from it in modern times, it's because it was their lifestyle. They lived on an island nation where fish was part of the diet, but it had an economic yield where it's the same thing with my duck eggs. I don't eat that many duck eggs because I have to serve my customers. So there was, a, there was a major export crop for them. Also, by that point, a lot of the fishing had been taken very, very, the fish amount of fish available for these fishing villages because of modern techniques being used by mainland Japanese and Chinese had been drastically reduced, so there were less fish to catch using their traditional methods. They lived in an island where you can't 
graze large amounts of animals. So the diet was a result of the lifestyle and the location. Now, what else came with this lifestyle? The Okinawan lifestyle was very much a traditional Japanese farmer lifestyle. You grew your crops and you ate from the crops that you grew in the field. Does anyone doubt that that might have an impact on longevity no matter what you're growing? If you're growing corn and squash and beans, you'd probably have a longer lifestyle, even though a lot of that stuff maybe is not the best stuff for us to eat, specifically the corn and the beans. But that's what these folks were doing. They were growing their own food. They were connected with the land. They also lived in mountainous, hilly country, and they walked everywhere that they went. This causes load-bearing on the bones, and as we age, it is the number one way we have to combat osteoporosis. If you have people that don't have osteoporosis in their older age, they're going to live longer because they're going to have less resulting health problems as a side result of it. So I think that to, to truly take this in and see, okay, well, the Okinawans lived longer than anybody else when they used to eat this way. They also lived this lo longer when they used to live that way. And if we look at the vegetarian Adventists in California, they also practice caloric restriction, etc. But what other things do they not engage in? So they don't drink alcohol. Now, I like to have a drink. I do. But I'm not going to tell you it's healthy for you. Okay? So, so that's a lifestyle that they don't smoke. They're generally physically active. That, that's a religious lifestyle. So there's a certain amount of desire to do missionary work. So this gives purpose to life. There's a meditation and a prayer involved, and therefore we have a, a, a focus on things larger than ourselves and a reduction in stress. And the traditional spirituality of Okinawa, while wildly different than the Adventists, is the same type of thing, largely influenced by the Buddhist faiths and, and similar things. So you have a society where people live every day of their lives in connection with the earth and each other in a village lifestyle. They eat almost no processed foods whatsoever. Everywhere they go is on foot, and there's a lot of moving up and downhill, giving a cardio effect. So you go in and you industrialize that society. It's not just the diet that changed. It's the lifestyle that changed. Now, you know, people, one of the number one jobs in, in Okinawa now is being a customer service representative for countries overseas. Because they have one of the largest English-speaking populations outside of the United States in the world per capita. Well, I don't know if you've ever done a telemarketing job. It kind of sucks. Or a customer service job. It kind of sucks. Stressful. You're worried about making ends meet by the end of the week, just like we are. I think that we're, we're damaging our health far more from a mental status than we are from many other things in society. So, I'm not, again, I'm not saying this disproves this theory. What I'm saying is we have to have a larger total view of it. Now, what can we learn in, in the paleo world, those of us who, who live more paleo life? One, don't eat grains and rice. And if you eat beans, eat them in moderation. That, that's, that's, that's kind of the number one thing. That's, that's the commonality. And number two is to focus on getting a lot of vegetables in our diet. And I think a lot of people think that, that the paleo diet is sitting around chewing on bacon and beef jerky. And that, that's, that's what it is. And while meat makes up a substantial component of, of the proper paleo diet, it is not the only component. It's not even the dominant component as, to, as far as total volume. Calorically, calorically it is the dominant player because we tend to eat meats that are higher in fats, good quality fats in that diet. So that's very calorically dense. But the bulk of volume should be made up with vegetables and smart types of fruits. 
And again, tubers playing an important role here, garlic and onions and, and, and salads. I mean, that's paleo living. So there's actually a lot more here that's the same than different. The, the big difference is the absence of meat. So I think to validate a comparison, you'd have to find a group of people eating a true paleo diet with a large amount of meat, but a significant amount of vegetables, and living a, a comparable life as far as physical activity. And you'd have to give those people enough time to live a hundred years to make a judgment between the two. Because here's what we, we, we do know. We don't have tons of people from the paleo world ending up on statin drugs 10, 15 years into it. This is a new movement, but it's not brand new. This has been around a while. And a lot of people that come to paleo come to it at 30 and 40 years of age when that youthful ability to just shed pounds and calories is gone. And then we, we get, we, we, we find ourselves overweight and we find this thing. And, you know, if you're going into your 50s and 50, mid 50s and, and early 60s, this is where people end up on blood pressure medication, statins, all this stuff. Well, you don't hear all these people living this way all of a sudden going, I'm not, you know, it didn't work. I had, and trust me, as many, as popular as this is, if it was chronic, you'd hear it. So that already shows us at least some anecdotal evidence that we're headed in the right direction. But, but I do believe that the message of this for, for people that want to live a diet with meat but be as healthy as possible with it is have a spiritual definition and meaning to your life, whatever that is for you. Whether, and if you are a atheist, you can still have a spiritual component to your life, a connectedness with all that is around you. I think it might lead you somewhere further than atheism, but if that's where you want to stay, that's fine. But have something that grounds you into the totality of and, and the pointlessness of over-worrying about things that you do not impact or control. I think that it means that we need to learn to pause and stop and think and contemplate. We need to be physically active. You know, and We need to walk more. And we need to consume large amounts of vegetable vegetables with what we're doing. Well, the good news is most of us in this world are also big on growing our own food, and they're the easiest things to grow in quantity. So, again, I don't think this is really like a dissertation here to you that proves I'm right or disproves the concept that this diet can make people live a long time. There's no doubt that living that way can make people live a long time. The, the question is, does that mean that other methods of eating can't also have extreme longevity and health during that longevity? Because I'll, I'll be blunt. If I can live to 99 and, and do so like a, a, an Okinawan from 1925, or I can live to 98 and live the way I do now, I'd probably consciously choose to live to 98, especially if I was going to be healthy to the end in both of those lifestyles. Just my thoughts. Let's go ahead and take another one. Let's go to something totally different here and talk about something that I've warned people about. And um, Mike here has seen it happen to himself because he was alerted to, to be on the lookout for it. it. says, Jack, thanks for the warning. Vanguard and FedEx teamed up to pick my pocket. I received a letter from Vanguard talking about my 401k plan. I don't have one. Not interested in one. The letter talked about automatic enrollment and 1% increases annually, up to 10% of contribution. I read it and put it aside as it didn't seem to apply to me. Last week, there was a deduction shown on my pay stub, which could have gone unnoticed. I had a shiny new 401k plan. After a day or so of spewing expurlatives, I reread the letter to pick up the legislate legalistic marketing BS language used in this scam. 
Most of FedEx employees happily contribute to 401k plans, but those who do, don't may not realize that it happened. Coincidentally, the th initial 3% automatic contribution to the plan occurs at the same time most employees receive a 3% pay raise. Church Lady would say, isn't that special? I logged, in, I logged on to zero out my 401k plan and stop all contributions. FedEx employees have 90 days to stop the theft and withdraw from the plan. I was glad to hear in episode 1262 it helped me put the pieces together. Mike, uh, now I know some of you are thinking, well, those evil, heartless bastards making someone save their own money in their own 401k account? Geez, how bad is this really? Okay, it's done without your consent. You, you, you don't sign up. It used to be 401k. The guy'd come in and tell you all about it, how you should start saving now, and why 401ks are the best way in the world to save. And by the way, it's because the guy talking to you is the guy that makes the commission on the entire deal. So of course he wants everybody in that room to contribute, okay? Because that goes in his total assets under management, right? That's, that's cherry picking when you get to that level in the financial management world and you have the ability to be the advisor for 401k plans because those guys never do anything. Those guys never do shit, but yet they are the advisor for the entire plan. Huh? Good money. Uh, and all they're going to tell you is fill out a form and figure out what percentage to put in each of like the 10 funds you get to pick from. Yeah. So the more important thing here isn't just that it was done without his consent. It's why is this happening? Well, you, you always have to go to Occam's Razor, right? The, 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 when, you, when you look for the simplest explanation. Well, there's a couple simple explanations here, and I think they all apply. I think the simplest explanation is that a financial services salesperson can go into a workplace and tell the employer, your, your, your employees should be saving money anyway. It's not mandatory. They can always opt out. So we'll just set up this automatic enrollment for them. They can opt out if they want to. And that will make the financial manager and the financial management company lots of money. So I think the profit motive is the number one thing that drives this. But this was done with some legislative pull as well. This wasn't technically legal to do just like 15 years ago. So that got changed. So how did that get changed? That came under all this stuff that happened when Obama released the MyRA program and things like that. And we need to help people save more money. Okay, We need to help people save more money. How about you leave people make their own decisions with their money? Helping people save more money is why you steal 15% of their income on average and put it into something called Social Security, which you, you, the government can't manage worth a damn. It, it, it's damn near insolvent. And people will say, well, the, the truth is the government owes the Social Security program. doesn't mean it's not insolvent. You're completely right when you say that. It's, like, it's not that... That the Social Security program is funded by the government. It's self-funding. Yeah, but the government takes that money. That's how it works. It's in a sense, it's like buying an illiquid bond. That's what Social Security is. So when you buy a government bond, it's a liquid asset. There might be certain terms that you have certain losses if you sell it early before the term or you give certain things up or there's certain tax advantages you lose them if you execute it before the term. And it could be a municipal bond. It could be a U.S. government, you know, federal bond. It could be any kind of bond issued by a government, but, but it's a government bond. You loan the government money, and then at the end of that term, you can cash in the bond plus interest. Okay, and, But it's liquid during the time that you're holding it. Uh, Social Security amounts to an illiquid government bond. It's not a lockbox like Gal Gore told you 20 years ago, and it never was meant to be. How could the government pay you interest on your money if they just let it sit there and didn't do anything with it? 
So Social Security works like this. You pay money in a Social Security. It doesn't sit there. It essentially is treated by the government like a loan. They do stuff with it immediately. And then they pay it back as they need to to pay out of the Ponzi scheme that is Social Security. See how that works? So when we look at that and we start to understand that illiquid bond thing, you start asking yourself, well, that means the government needs money that they don't have. So they tax us, they get us to buy bonds, they do all types of things to help fund the activities of government. And as the government continues to grow, the funding must grow commensurate with the size of government. And we're reaching a point where that just doesn't work anymore. We just can't do that. Like Their desire to grow in power is now exceeding the financial ability to, to sustain them. So they start getting hungry and looking for other forms of money. And the, the last pieces of the puzzle to complete this and understand why this has been done is we have to understand some changes that were made to the average 401k plan about seven, eight years ago now. When I started the show, I was telling people, get out of the stock market. And they're like, well, we can't. I have all my money in my 401k. I'm like, don't take it out of your 401k. Just get out of the stock funds and go to a cash fund. And I started getting email from people, there's no cash fund. And I was like, bullshit. Of course there is. There's a, I ran companies for years. There's always a cash option. It has to be there. And somebody would send me their little portfolio thing that outlines what's in their plan. And there's no cash option. No money market equivalent account. No dollar fund. Um, what would be there is a U.S. government bond fund or a municipal bond fund or a combination thereof, or some fund that was a combination of those two. And I'd just say, hey, go to government bonds. It's it, it's pretty much the same as cash. But, oh, it could lose money or whatever. Yeah, but it's not going to, like, this is when the stock market was about to kibosh itself. I was like, you're going to lose half your wealth if you sit in those stock funds. So this is the next best thing. So then I started thinking about that and said, what the hell's going on here? Why the hell would almost every major 401k provider in the country almost simultaneously eliminate cash options. And even if there was still there, it was a grandfather, you couldn't put any additional money in it. And that old fund you sat there, you had to start then funding this bond fund. Well, because every single employee is said is told to keep some of their money safe. Maybe when you're really young, 10, 15%. As you get older, you move more and more toward your safe investments. Okay. So if you take the cash fund away, where does the money then have to go to be safe? Or as safe as it can be inside the 401 vehicle? Government bonds, which are essentially what? A loan to the government. So in that one move, the government caused literally billions of dollars of America's money to be loaned to it in perpetuity until such time as retirement came, all by incentivizing and working with these corporations to eliminate that ugly cash option because the, the, the rationalization has been you don't earn enough return on your money with it. You need to have investments that actually pay you interest. And cash doesn't pay enough interest. So in your best interest, we've eliminated your safe haven and given you one just as good, government bonds. Even though you can lose money in them, it's just as good. Now, the next step was pretty simple. Most of you have jumped here by now. Now what we'll do is we'll set up a legislative environment where these providers can cause an automatic required enrollment and will tell the American people it's not mandatory because you can opt out and that it's good for them. And most of the uninformed sheep will just let it happen. It's only 3%. Yeah, it's too much trouble. The average person feels like it's too much trouble to undo it now that it's done. I knew I should have did it anyway, but I didn't. Now, the last final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, okay, 
James Taylor in the Simpsons puzzle, right? Some of you will remember that little reference. Um, when you get automatically enrolled, what do you think you get automatically enrolled for? Do you think they put you in something like the AIM Constellation Fund that's a high-risk, high-rate-of-return fund against your will? No. They put you in the, the safest bottom-tier investment that will at least give you some return on your money, and they leave it to you to eventually log into your automated account or whatever and figure out how to allocate your funds. But at least you're saving. Guess what those funds are? U.S. government bond funds. So every single time a person is automatically enrolled without their consent into their 401k plan and starts contributing 3% of their money, they are being coerced by a, a cabal of their employer and the plan provider and the government into loaning the government money every single paycheck. That's And so you have to ask yourself, how desperate are we that we've finagled that little plan into place because it was done with no fanfare, nobody. I am still to this day, I believe the only person who has ever brought this information to the public. Um, I don't know of anybody else who's explained this anywhere else. And it should be in every major media outlet, period, to the point where at least the American people know it's occurring. But no one has any interest in it. Why? Because you have to think critically to understand what I just said. Which means nine out of ten of you out there understand perfectly what I just said. I know you do. You really, and if you explained it back to me, you'd explain it clear enough that I'd go, you got it. Okay, okay. Go explain it to your brother-in-law. See if he gets it. Go to explain it to your sister. See if she gets it. Go explain it to your dad. Go explain it to your son. If he's old enough to be working. See if he gets it. I'll bet you the majority of the people you know specifically the uninformed people that you know, will not even understand what I just said. But you do, and don't forget it. Don't let other people control the investment of your wealth. Take complete control. If you want to be in a 401k, fine. But don't let it be done without your knowledge, and then just later see it's only 3%, it's all right. You know, if you make 500 bucks a week, what is it, 15 bucks? That's 15 bucks that you're loaning Uncle Sam. If you want to buy government bonds, go ahead and do it. But don't let them make you. Let's take another one. So I've made some pretty bold predictions about our future, and uh, this email validates one of them yet again. This is one of those ones where when I get a Jack was right email, I don't really feel great about it, but I don't feel bad either. It's like, damn it, I didn't want to be right. This, this is just stuff that's going to happen. So Ron sends me this. says, live from my local Kroger. Scan your shit as you shop and auto-pay your scan without taking all your shit back out of the cart. You called another one, brother. Keep up the good work, Ron. He has a picture. I posted that on Facebook, and I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can see it. And here's what the picture has, a little box on it. It says, scan, bag, and go. It says, shop with a scanner on your smartphone. Bag as you shop. Pay at self-checkout. It's that easy. Try it today. Scan with your smartphone. Download the app today. So you just have this app on your phone. You scan every item as you put it in your bags, in your cart, and then you go to sell, check out, pay, and leave. Well, this is the first step. The phone being brought into it is intentional. It has to be because the phone will be the final linchpin when this thing's done. What's going to eventually happen is, see, this relies somewhat 
on honesty. And I'm sure you pay at self-checkout so that the checkout lady can at least look and maybe you snuck in a pack of Fritos or something that they didn't get. But there's a basic list that's right there in front of her that's what you should have. It kind of looks like what you have. You look like an honest person. Ah, out the door you go. You, you go to the register and you pay. Where this will lead, where this will lead will be this. The cart itself will be a systematic scanning device. You'll go to the store, and when you pick something up and put it in the cart, the cart will beep, so you know it was scanned. Or it'll say, item not scanned, please re, you know, remove and re return to cart. Beep, okay. And you just, you just throw all your shit in your cart. And what will happen is if you get to the front of the store to leave, your phone will say, Doop, please pay now. Poop, done. Pay. Door opens, off you go. How many jobs does that eliminate? How many jobs does that eliminate? Start thinking. That's just one form of automation. I told you this would happen. I said this like three years ago. I said this is to be the model for grocery stores. You know what I was told? Ah, crazy. Nuts. What do you know? You don't know nothing. You're just some, you're some redneck from Texas. You don't know anything. You're a redneck transplant. You're not even from Texas. You're from, you're from Pennsylvania via Florida to Texas. You, 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 you run ducks for a living. What do you know? Well... I know how to observe and interact. I learned that from permaculture. Now, you can just see this is where this is going. You have to ask yourself right now, like, why aren't they even completing? If it's an app on my phone, if I scan everything on my phone, why do I have to go to self-checkout to pay? Why don't I just pay on my phone? Oh, you can bet that's coming next. You can interface with your, with your PayPal account or your app from your bank, right? You have a credit card on file like Amazon one-click ordering. So it's not to be two clicks because Amazon has a patent on one click. I wonder when that runs out. It doesn't stay forever. Did you know that? Amazon has a patent on one click ordering. That's why no one else has one click ordering. And sometimes when you're on Amazon, you says order now with one click. You click a button. Damn it. I didn't mean to buy that. <laughs> I guess I'm, well, at least you can go cancel your order. But that is an Amazon technology. So for now, you'd have to have two clicks. Pay $229.15. Pay. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, now it's two click. It doesn't violate Amazon's patent. The only reason that's not in there yet is because they're trying to make sure they don't end up with a major theft problem or burn rate in the store. So when we do inventory at the end of the day and we look at the amount of money that went out and the money that came in, there's a certain amount of burn all the time in stores where people steal. But here's the reality. This doesn't help a person steal. When you complete the loop of this technology what it eventually does is make it harder to steal. Because there'll be proximity sensors to your cart. And if you stick something in your pocket to steal it, it'll still get charged. What'll, what'll probably happen is you'll end up at a point where when you pick something up, the store knows you picked it up. It goes right to your account. Unless you put it back, as far as they know, you still have it. You're paying for it before you leave. We can't go that far. Hey, you said we couldn't go this far. I'm just saying, take a look. It's on Facebook. You don't have to be a Facebook member. I have these, these uh, uh, photos that I post there uh, publicly posted, so you can just go look at it. But if you are on Facebook, give me a comment on that photo. Let me know what you think. Let's keep the variety going. Totally different question. Jack, do you have any updated thoughts on cordless chainsaws as a primary or only chainsaw for small property owners? Details. I recently purchased a DeWalt cordless 40-volt brushless string trimmer. 
So far, I've been very happy with it for my modest needs. DeWalt has recently introduced a matching chainsaw that has piqued my interest. This saw would be for general homestead use and emergency clearing. I do not anticipate using it for dropping trees. In episode 1240 and 1040, you recommended gas as a primary and electric as a secondary. Do you still maintain that view two years later? Yeah, I do. Because uh, cordless chainsaws and even electric chainsaws in general have just simply not gotten up to the power capabilities of a gas saw. But for what? If you're going to use it for trimming trees, limbing stuff and stuff like that, and occasionally cutting up a fairly sizable limb into a few smaller pieces for firewood and stuff like that, then a, then a cordless chainsaw is, is great if you go with one of the newer ones. Now, do I kind of sanction your choice of the DeWalt? Okay, with the disclaimer... That I love, 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 love DeWalt, chain, DeWalt tools. I am a DeWalt fanboy, I will admit it. Every power tool that I've ever invested in except my chainsaw is a DeWalt, and there's a reason. Um, I believe they make some of the best stuff available today. I love, love, love DeWalt. However, you know what I really love? I love my Oregon Power Now electric cordless chainsaw. I don't know that the DeWalt might not be a little bit more powerful. I My gut is, since it has a longer bar, that alone would require more power to effectively run a 16-inch bar versus a 12-inch bar. Okay, I don't have any idea what the battery longevity is, but it's 400 bucks. The Oregon Power Now, when it came out, was in that price range with the, with, uh, the, the, the lighter battery. Um, the uh, it's a 2.4 amp hour battery. When it, when, the, when Oregon saw first came out, it was about 400 bucks with the, the lower end battery, and they have a, a, a extended range battery. And if you bought the saw with the extended range battery, a four amp hour battery, 399.95 uh, is 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 what it is now. But in the past, it was closer to 400 dollars. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, 500 dollars. So the the cost of the four amp hour Oregon power now has now dropped down to 400 bucks. Hmm, I wonder why. Because the DeWalt with the 4 amp hour lithium ion battery is $400. So I think you get probably a little bit more power out of the DeWalt based on a little bit that I've read on it and just my knowledge of DeWalt tools. And a bit of a bigger bar. Though I don't know how valuable a 16 inch bar is going to be in either of these saws. Because there's still a limit to what a rechargeable battery based tool can do. And the one thing the Oregon does that the DeWalt does not is you take the Oregon, you pull a lever, and you hit and in like three seconds, your chain is razor sharp. Yes, eventually the chains wear out. So do all chains. Yes, the little sharpening stone wears out. But if you're going to use it for the application that you're talking about, limbing trees and trimming and stuff like that on a small homestead, I would rather have a chainsaw that, let's say, if you had the DeWalt was a 10 of 10, and the Oregon was a 9 of 10, a 9 of 10 with an always sharp chain, and you just buy a couple extra chains and stones, and they come in a set, and it's really easy to change it out. Even I can do it. I am going to go with the sharp chain every time. That said, I might change my mind if I use a DeWalt. And I understand why you would. If you already have a tool that has that battery in it, and then you buy this saw with a battery. Now you have two batteries for each tool. So you've increased the longevity of both tools. 
And if you ever go out and buy a third battery to increase your electrical longevity even further, then you have three batteries for both tools. And any other tool you buy from DeWalt will use that battery. I get it. I get it. That's why I'm still using the old form factor, even with upgrading to the better batteries in DeWalt, because I have all these tools, and they all take that particular battery pack. So I get it. But man, unless you like sharpening chainsaw blades and you know how to do it really well, consider the Oregon. Now, I just learned, this is great that this commercial came up, or this uh, question came up, because I just learned about something that I, I didn't know. Uh, Oregon has a new electric chainsaw. Um, it's not an upgrade to the old one. It's just a brand new electric chainsaw. What it has is the same integral sharpening system to it. So you pull back on the little lever, you hit it, and it sharpens the, the, the blade. It's got an 18-inch bar. What's the big difference? You plug it in. This is a plug-in electric chainsaw. Now, the truth is an electric chainsaw that you plug into an extension cord will outperform All of the, a good one anyway, an equivalent of the, the cordless ones. It's less convenient. But with an 18-inch bar, power on demand with an electric cord, um, and a small homestead, this could be a low-priced option. A much more low-priced option than either of the other ones. And so convenient and so affordable, $144.07 on Prime, that even though I have the rechargeable one, I'm holding myself back from ordering one of these right now. The new, uh, there's some other things in it that I like. It has a, a, a way to adjust the, tr the chain tension without tools. You don't use a, a screwdriver to adjust. It has a, a man, you could just use it with your hands to adjust the chain tension. And now they've added where you put your bar chain oil in a window so you can actually see without opening it up how much oil you have left in the saw. I looked at that and thought, well, maybe they've upgraded the, the, the cordless version. They haven't done so yet. I would bet you that a new version of that saw will come out soon from Oregon. Okay, so if you're really hip for uh, a cordless chainsaw, but want like the latest and greatest, I think this whole market's evolving and better and better stuff keeps coming out. And if you could get by with the plug-in model for $140, bucks, buy that now. Wait till everybody comes out with their next generation and then make that choice as long as you can wait. And then you have two is one, one is none. One's cordless, one's corded. But I think I'm going to go ahead and buy this saw. At, again, at $144 to have a second chainsaw that, I, that will handle tougher cutting situations, still having on-demand sharpening, awesome. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, Oregon makes a special bar for almost every major chainsaw manufacturer out there and their own custom change. Uh, sorry, somebody's trying to Skype me, man. What's up with that? <laughs> Give me a second, guys. And what this allows you to do is you buy a bar for your saw. If you have a DeWalt, if you have a, a Husqvarna, if you have a steel, you can buy a bar for your saw. And you buy the special chain. And you can basically implement that on-demand sharpening with any chainsaw. But it's not integral. There's a little thing that goes on the end of your, so like a point of your, your bar. And you stick it in there and you push it up against a tree or uh, uh, the ground or something. And you run your saw. It looks like it works. I think it might be a little bit dangerous, honestly. Of course, you have to have safety first at all those times with a chainsaw. But it's, 
it's not that on the fly because I'm out cutting and my saw starts to not cut very well and I just and just keep cutting. Uh, the the tension adjustment on the chain of the power now uh, power now uh, cordless saw is my least favorite feature of it. Uh, there's quite often where the saw starts to not cut well. I'm like, what's wrong with this thing? I've sharpened it. It's not working. Did I wear the chain out? And then you stop it and you, you put the, ch the chain lock on and you look at it and the chain's hanging. It has a consistent issue with not staying tight. And most chainsaws have that issue. I'm kind of excited to see what this other version and with a manual adjustment, if it's quick and convenient, it may not be that it doesn't have the same issue with constantly getting too loose, but it might be quicker to take uh, corrective action. Because with the power now, what you have to do, you engage your bar lock, you loosen. Now, you don't have to use a wrench. You do have a hand loosening uh, thing on the, on, the, on the cover, but then you have to take a, a, a screwdriver and go in there and turn the little screw and tighten it back up. And, of course, it's all gummed up with oil and sawdust, and you get all dirty and stuff. So... I'm going to get one of these and I'll let you know what I think about it. So I think those are your three options. Go with the DeWalt because you already have everything. You go with the, one of the Oregon products because of the sharpening feature. You're at the same cost either way. Yes, you have two different power systems, but trust me, you'll love it. Or go with the lower cost option of the plug-in saw if you're truly on a small homestead where you can get a 100-foot extension cord and get just about anywhere you want to be on your property. Let's take another one. Here's a little thing uh, that's kind of cool, and maybe if you guys emulate it, it could help build the value of the MSB, because the more I can do for the MSB vendors, the more MSB vendors I can get for you guys. Um, this is from Jerry. Jerry says, I wanted to let you know what I've started using the MSB discounts. I started with Mai Tai Coffee. I put in a $64 order with free shipping, and the total was $59 at, ch at checkout. I'm going to take the coffee to work and let the office taste test the coffee. I'm sure the pumpkin spice and French vanilla will be a hit, as well as the others. I'm going to advise that everyone share the six different coffees that I ordered so they can find a favorite. I bet they start ordering from Mai Tai to keep the pantry office stock. We both know office runs on coffee and Diet Coke. Plus, I believe I'll be able to order a large portion of my Christmas list off the MSB discounts. Trifecta win, hat trick. I get to support you, the sponsors of the MSBs, and the savings will pay for my membership. And bonus, I can order interesting, useful gifts for my friends and family. Thank you, my friend. That is, that is, that is what you are. We share many views on subjects. I often feel we must have known ourselves, each other in this life or another. Jerry, uh, cool, man. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. Like, I never really thought of it, but what if, what if, I don't know, a hundred of you guys out of all the MSB members decided to take some Mai Tai coffee into the office and just, you know, make it available to the uh, to office. And when the office says, well, how do we get this? You say, go to Mai Tai Coffee and get it. Oh, but if you want a discount, join this crazy discount club for this crazy survivalist guy. It'll pay for it just in coffee discounts if you do that. That blows up Mai Tai Coffee. Now, don't you think you're going to want to do more for us if we can blow up what they're doing just by this kind of passive secondhand marketing? And the gifts thing. Guys, I'm going to tell you, um, the, there, there's a couple in there that as you're looking toward Christmas – Think about supporting them as, as a way to, you know, buy your Christmas gifts this year. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of prepper-centric, and you probably know people that stuff like that makes good gifts for. But let's just talk about a few things in there that maybe would be awesome that aren't necessarily prepper, even though they're a little bit toward the prepper belt, or not prepper at all. WannabeKnifeKits.com. What a cool thing to give somebody that's kind of like the, the tinkerer that likes to, you know, to do stuff. I mean, KnifeKits.com, you get a discount. It's not huge, but it's a discount. Um, 
If you know a martial arts enthusiast, you get them a subscription to Black, Black Belt Magazine with a, with a big discount. Um, gardeners, there's tons of stuff. You know, there's the Victory Seed Company. There's there's high mowing. There's a, a um, there's a terroir seeds. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. Soil Cube from Clayton Jacobs. That's that's another good thing. Um, but there's some stuff that I I mean I don't think we really you know think about enough for people that may have no interest whatsoever in prepper stuff. Um, how about two timbers display cases? Well, those are beautiful. And if you know someone that's into collecting and stuff like that, what a great gift. Made in America, handmade, beautiful, and you get a discount on it. Um, another one would be EcoSense. Uh, those of you with women in your lives that you're always trying to figure out what to get, check out EcoSense. E-C-O-S-E-N-T-S. Uh, great discount that we have available to you guys uh, from EcoSense. Mai Tai Coffee. This is a whole conversation started. I mean, most of us, the people we know, drink coffee. Um, the Olive Basket. LLC, right? Olive basket with the infused oils and vinegars. Those are great gifts. I, I, I bet you, if you look at all of the discounts in the MSB, and if you're a person with any kind of a sizable family that you know, buys a gift here and a gift there and does that all the way up to Christmas time so you get all your stuff done without leaving the house, I bet you that what you would save on Christmas gifts almost pays for your membership, if not more. Now, that doesn't work for everybody. I understand that. You know, I think there might be a little too much um, commercialism in the whole Christmas holiday anymore and everything. But if you're going to buy gifts for people anyway, why not buy them cool stuff from people that support the show you love? And guys, let me explain something to you. My entire goal in this line of thinking is the more I do for them, the more they're willing to do for us. Because I don't make a dime when you buy something from an MSB supporter. I make my money on the MSB by selling access to the discounts. That's what I sell. I don't take any kickbacks. I don't take any referrals. I don't take anything. And whatever it's offered, when somebody says, well, I'm going to give you 5%, 5%, 5% per sale. Oh, great. Then take your 15% discount, make it a 20% discount, and give the audience that. I don't want your money. I w That's the business model I'm in. So just take a look at it, because there is some cool stuff that many of you maybe have been members for years, haven't even looked at. You don't even know it's available. Um, the stuff from Primal Power with Gary Collins is, is, is available for discounts. Doctor's Nutrition, for those of you working with those guys, 10% discount on all your stuff. Uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus, 180 TAC. Again, we get back into like kind of the, the tactical stuff and all and the prepper stuff, but, man, there's a lot of cool stuff there. Give that lady in your life some training with Pretty Loaded. There's discounts Pretty Loaded. Uh, you know, some, some firearms training. Tons of stuff. Uh, just make sure that, you know, you, you, if you're, if you're all, I'm not trying to sell memberships here today. What I'm saying is if you are a member, and cause I get emails from you guys that are like, I just do it to help you. I appreciate that. But if you're buying this stuff, get the discounts because it makes the whole, this is a community. This is like a giant organism now is what the MSBs become. And the more I can do to help any existing member, the more I can do to attract other members because the more success stories I can tell when I'm trying to negotiate these discounts for you guys. Want more proof that our government's out of control and lost its mind? Here's a, here's a headline you can't even make up. It has to be true. Woman caught swiping fruit from a tree in Bethlehem Park, cops say. 67-year-old New York woman violated city ordinance when she shook a fruit tree and poked it with a large stick in an effort to remove fruit, Bethlehem police say. Yi Lu faces a fine if found guilty of violating the ordinance which prohibits people from damaging or removing any part of a plant or tree within a city park, Police Lieutenant Jeff Herzog said on Thursday morning. The incident happened 
Really? The incident? This is an incident? Good God. Shortly after 1.30 p.m. Tuesday on South Bethlehem Greenway near Sands Casino Resort, Bethlehem. Herzog said the police report isn't yet complete, so he doesn't know the type of tree. Does it matter? Ralph Carp, the city's director of Parks and Recreation and Public Property, said he does not know of any trees bearing common fruit along the Greenway. It's possible the fruit could have been berries on a dogwood tree, he said. The berries are edible according to the U.S. National Arboreum website, but are not commonly used in American cuisine. The fruits are not poisonous, but they do not have a very pleasing flavor, the website said. Lehigh, Lehigh University did recently plant some common fruit trees on a stretch of the Greenway. But Carp said he doesn't think those trees are old enough to bear fruit yet. The lieutenant said officers caught Lau in the act of poking the tree with a large stick. After responding to a call about people cutting down trees, she was detained, cited, and released, he said. Is your head ready to explode? An old lady, right, a 67-year-old Asian lady, sees some fruits in a tree that she probably recognizes because... They are tasty. They're called Cornelian cherries, morons. Um, and I've been trying so hard to grow them here. This frustrates me even more. Um, and she pokes a tree and gets some of these berries, and the police come and arrest and detain her. You know they seize that property, too. If you are a person who would defend the state's actions in this case, do me a favor. Shut off TSP and don't listen. I can't help you. You're, you're not ready for what we talk about here yet. Your, your mind is warped. If you think it makes sense to arrest an old lady for taking berries off a tree, not only is this country too damn stupid to plant edible trees where all these green spaces are so we can help feed each other, we're arrogant enough that when somebody makes use of a resource that doesn't taste good so we don't want that anyway, we arrest them. The, The fact that a police lieutenant's commenting on this is moronic. The fact that this happened is moronic. And the, and the, and the fact that the director of Parks and Recreation is an idiot is also moronic because he does not know of any trees bearing common fruit along the way. It's possible the fruit could have been buried from a dogwood tree. Well, at least he knows that. But he also says that there were some trees planted recently that are common fruit trees, but he doesn't think they're old enough to bear fruit yet. Well, here's a little clue, moron. Sometimes you plant a brand new tree right out of a pot, right? A couple-year-old tree, one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-old tree, it bears fruit immediately. It does happen. As director of parks, you should know. Oh, but that's right. You wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that because you guys purposely don't plant any tree that does anything useful for anybody. And when you accidentally do, you have them arrested. This is stupidity. This is stupidity. They got a call about people cutting down trees. You want to bet that didn't even happen? Maybe some kid made a fork cut a couple branches off or something like that. I don't know. It was probably people that saw this lady with a stick and thought she was cutting down trees because nobody would be that stupid, let me tell you. Let me tell you. When I went and did a photo shoot with Brian Black out at uh, Big Bend National Park, we were out there. I'm wearing, like, street clothes, okay? And I'm taking pictures of him putting camouflage clothing on a mannequin. The report that went to the park rangers that came and harassed us were, there's two guys running around in camouflage with a big black bag. There was a big black bag. There were no people in camouflage. There was a doll, I called it Bryce doll, a half mannequin that was having camouflage jackets put on it. And I'm standing there with a camera with a lens about a foot and a half long. 
It's very clear. It's very clear. This is not a drug deal. But that's the, or this is not about illegal immigration or something like that. But that's how the people in the park visitors reported it to the Rangers. Oh, there's some guys that got camouflage, they're running around, they got a big black bag. Yeah, and they came out and they harassed us over this. And we went to the park headquarters the day before and told them what we would be doing and got permission to do it. And the two yokels that came out to harass us decided that didn't matter. You guys need to stop doing this. Wait a minute. We went to your headquarters. We told them we, and they said it was okay. Yeah, well, it's not okay now. You know why? Because they had to get off up their fat asses and actually do something. And they didn't want to be bothered with any more annoying call, phone calls by stupid people. If you want a case against government, those are two great cases against government. Two guys taking pictures are some kind of terrorist group or something. Idiots, right? And then people calling the police because somebody might have cut down a tree in a park. My God, we have lost our freaking minds. And then the cops get there. No one's cut down an old, cut a tree down. They see an old lady with a stick poking a tree. And the officer responding is such a freaking moron, he arrests her. I would love to talk to this officer face-to-face -face and tell him that he is or she is an idiot and should not be wearing a badge or a uniform and should not have authority over anybody. Because if you're that stupid, you're not the guy I want kicking in a door when you pick the wrong house or the right house. You're not responsible enough to be in law enforcement if you write a ticket and detain an old lady over poking a freaking fruit tree. You are a moron, sir or ma'am, and you should be fired. And this lieutenant... If you don't fix this shit, dude, you should be fired. And anybody, if this lady says, I'm not, I'm not just paying a fine. I want my day in court. Anybody that would convict this lady for poking a tree is a moron and should not have authority. And you know how many morons there are out there with authority? Lots of them. Lots of them. Way too many. Let's find something else to wrap up the show with because I don't want to end on that. I have a question from Larry that's just kind of like a reminiscing question. Larry says, do you miss anything from your Arkansas homestead now that you've been back in Texas for a while? Uh, I guess you might miss the extra rainfall. Other than that, what else? I do miss the rainfall. Um, from a homesteading standpoint, as far as what I'm able to produce and what I'm able to do and running the workshops and everything else, I don't miss anything because everything's better here from that, that standpoint. Um, that property in Arkansas was great as a remote property, which is what we originally bought it for. And it was great to be a place where you could get away from everybody. It wasn't a great place to bring a lot of people to. That's what made it great to get away from everybody. So I, there would be no TSP workshops if we were still there. So it, that, that in of itself is a, is a major upgrade. Um, the fact that I can have livestock here in the numbers that I do and, and manage them the way that I do and all is, is awesome. Uh, the, the soils are not really any that much worse here than they were there. There's a plenty of places there you couldn't dig a hole either. So uh, it's not like I, 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 I you know went from a place where I had deep rich soils into, into this rocky hell hole, different type of rock and different type of problem. But So there's a lot of comparability there. The, The house is a nicer house. I feel uh, very blessed to have this home. Uh, the workshop spaces, the, the garage, and the smaller outbuildings are fantastic. Um, I would have never put them in in Arkansas because there was too much expense and no place to put them, honestly. So in most ways, this is better. I'm closer to my son now, and it was harder than I thought it would be to be away from my son. 
Uh, I still only see him, you know, uh, about twice a month for a length of time, but I see him almost every week when he comes by here to do our pool and stuff. So at least I see him weekly. I get to spend time with my grandson and my daughter-in-law. So all of that's better. What do I miss though? I miss the seclusion. I, because we were still close and like we weren't so far away that you couldn't go someplace, right? But I miss the concept that on Friday evening, When a friend or two would go visit my neighbors up the road for me, and we left the gate open for them, and two cars would come by, and somebody was visiting me, we would say that's rush hour, and they would laugh because they didn't get it, and Darth and I knew we really meant it. That was rush hour. Two cars coming through the gate in 30 minutes? That's unheard of around here. It must be Friday night. They must be having company up the road. I miss that. I miss the hardwoods, the dense hardwood forests. I miss being able to hunt deer out my back door. I miss being able to shoot out my back door. Not that it's legally uh, not allowed here, that it's logistically not safe for my property where all my neighbors are really to be shooting unless I put in a really huge berm or something like that. I may eventually do that. But the fact that I could just walk out the door and just shoot, you know, that I could go hunting on my road and and and, and what have you, that, that all I miss. Um, I, I kind of miss that it was just Dorothy and me. Like, I'm glad that everybody's back, but... You know, when we were there, if somebody came to visit us, they had to want to come to visit us. And when we came here, we had to want to come here. And we had, you know, we had a year and a half of something that most married couples have at the beginning of their marriage that we never had. I guess there's less and less people have this now because more and more blended families. But, you know, when a typical marriage, you get married, you have no kids. And then eventually, a couple years into it or so, you have kids. So you have like this like the honeymoon period, not just a honeymoon for a couple weeks, but you have like this time to really just be together and it just be about the two of you and to develop your relationship. You know, we had to do that 15 years in our relationship. You know, my son was finally off on his own and, and we kind of moved away and that was great that we had that. So I kind of missed that. But on the other hand, like now we, we have both because we got that time. So I think that was extremely valuable. I kind of miss having an office that separated work from home and that Dorothy and I would both take our own vehicles. We wouldn't carpool. People thought it was crazy. It was only 11 miles. And the reason was that she went to work several hours later than me. But we kind of had like that always together and that little bit of separation was kind of cool. Um, it was all about the, 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 the environment is, is the only things I miss. Logistically, There's a lot of things that I find lacking here. I wish I had deep swells. I wish I had a little bit more land. But anything I wish I have here that I don't have, I didn't have there. So, again, that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. But I think there's a lesson there that a lot of people need to think about that are in these modern blended families where you know you get married and, and there's already a kid involved and you adopt a child as your own and trust me it's one of the most rewarding and more difficult things you can ever do as a man it takes it takes courage to step up and take responsibility for a child that another man fathered uh women i know do that as stepmothers as well but many times in these these types of arrangements it seems very common anyway you've got a a, a woman with one or two kids and it's the man stepping into that role Um, especially in these younger marriages, and they're still in your 20s and stuff like that. I'm sure it goes the other way. But I don't have, just to caveat that, I don't have experience with it the other way around. And I'm sure it's difficult too. Um, but in many of these relationships, and in traditional, you know, they get married and then they have kids' marriages, we tend to end up so involved with our kids' lives. We 
take them to activities. We, their, their friends become almost our adopted kids. When Matthew was a, was a kid, you know, like all his friends I knew on a first name basis, they were at our house all the time. Everybody else wanted to kind of push them out the door, you know, and I'm like, I want them here. I know what they're up to. And I became somewhat of a mentor to his friends by proxy. And their parents became our friends. You know, and you, you get so much of your life wrapped into your kids and seeing their needs. You stop seeing your own needs. You stop seeing your partner's needs. And you don't have date nights like you should and stuff like that. And what happens is when that kid goes off to college or gets his first job or gets his first place or whatever, there's this hole. Right, and I think women tend to mourn deeper than men do in it. Men have our own stoic, you know, and there's breaks of every stereotype, but in general, men have this stoic, that's just the way it's got to be attitude, and women have like this emptiness. But in the end, you end up with this emptiness that's not just individual, you and your, your spouse. You end up with an emptiness as a couple. Like, what do we do with our lives now? And it, 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 it bears some thought. Is to how you use that. Because I know people in my life that I see that are so engaged with their kids. I think it's wonderful. But they're engaged to the exclusion of their own lives. It's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. Well, what's going to happen four years, five years, when that last kid graduates out the door, goes off to college, whatever? And that couple sits there, and they haven't really been a couple in, 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 in a true deeper sense, right, for 20 years while they're raising kids. Will they know how to do that again? And I think one of the greatest gifts we got was we never got to do that. You know, when I met Dorothy, Matthew was like six going on seven. And, you know, our whole life was this raising a child to be a man. And then... You know, we would take vacations for a couple days or something, and it's even hard to do that because you want to be home with the kid and you don't want to leave him alone. And when we went to Arkansas, it was like a, a total clean break. We had to focus on each other. And, and I would counsel any couple who's headed for that to start thinking about that now and start developing things that you can do together that are not centric to your children and start doing at least a little bit of them now. So that you can transition because as you, it, it shouldn't, see this is the other problem with, with, with parents I think. It's like, it's all balls to the wall about the kids and then the day they leave it just stops. There's no phasing out anymore. Right? You know, either they're parents that are disinterested and disinvolved and a kid raises himself. Right? And that's a huge problem, much bigger problem. Or there's like constant involvement, constant involvement, constant involvement and it goes away. There should be a, a, a separating over time. You should be willing to let go. My, my, my statement has always been, if you are a good parent, you know from day one, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Every day, that child should be a little bit more free and a little bit more liberated from your yoke. And it's as much for you as it is for them. And so they can function. And so they don't call you because they have a headache. And do I take two aspirins? What does the bottle say? Right? I mean, really? I mean... That's the kind of thing going on now. But it's also for you so that you don't go from like this, this total engagement. In, I didn't know we'd end up with this when I took this question. But, you know, this is the survival podcast. And survival is not about just waking up breathing tomorrow. It's about surviving as you want to live and surviving as families. And, and, and we, are, we are losing that battle. Families are dying 
in this in this in this country today. The, the the true family bond is being destroyed by a society that stopped valuing it. And the, the the center of that is the two parents. It really is. And if we don't focus on each other as couples, then that all falls away. So one of the biggest blessings, I guess, of Arkansas was having that time away. And I think it's something that we can all learn from. So thank you for that question. With that, I'm ready to wrap up for today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, we had a wide variety of stuff to carry today. I think we're coming in right about an hour and 30, like I'm trying to do is keep them an hour and 30 or less. And I'm going to close today with a, show, a song most of you have probably never heard. Uh, this is by a country music artist that many of you have heard of, thanks to Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks really put this guy on the map for the mainstream, but those of us that love country music and real cowboys, um, we, we knew about Chris Ledoux long before he ended up in that Garth Brooks song. And uh, he did some music that was more pop music once he had that major mainstream discovery. There's a reason. It's because that's what you have to do if you want to play there. But he did a lot of really great music over the years. And Chris Lesvis, a few years ago, died pretty young, honestly. I think it was a brain aneurysm or something like that, or cancer. Uh, but it was a sad thing to, to lose a guy like that. This was a guy that, you know, even when he was really famous, still played smaller clubs around Dallas-Fort Worth uh, because he believed in being in front of the people that made his life possible. And he has a song about cowboys called You Just Can't See Him From The Road. And... Like most great music, I think this song has a lot going for it beyond its intention, which is the cowboy still exists. The guy that still makes a living, mending fences, and, and using his rope and taking care of livestock, still out there. He's still out there. He's not as well known as he used to be. We don't make movies as much about him anymore. When we do, it's always a remake, but he's still out there. But see, I think that the cowboy embodies in America... The concept of the man that does the right thing for the right reason, no matter what, that works hard, that makes a living, that you can trust. I think that if you if you if you made a list of, of different types of people, uh, high atop the list of someone, if he shook your hand and gave his word on something, you knew you could keep it. It'd be the cowboy. I really do. The country boy. If it's not the cowboy, it's the country boy. You know. That's what it is to me. The people that are out there that still understand the value and tradition of real America, that can fix things when they break, that, that get out you know, on the land, that practice everything from bushcraft survival skills to, to hunting and fishing and teach their kids to understand what the land provides, that know how to have a relationship with nature, that can actually look at an animal and see it as their friend their companion, the way a cowboy sees his horse, or the way a redneck farmer, <laughs> me, sees his dogs. Team members, family members. And to see that larger. And the reality is, most of us that are still out here, it's kind of hard to see what we're doing from the road. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, you don't see him much on the big screen anymore. And kids don't ride along with Royer Jean. And that ain't really him with all those feathers in his hat. And some Frenchman's name embroidered on his jeans. 
still out there riding fences Still makes his living with his rope As long as there's a sunset He'll keep riding for the brand You just can't see him from the road Well, he never learned to two-step Kelly barely learned to walk But he's worn a lot of leather off the tree He's had one or two good horses That he counts among his friends He never drew a breath that wasn't free But he's still out there riding fences Still makes his living with his rope As long as there's a sunset You'll keep riding for the brand You just can't see him from the road Well, he's tall in the saddle And short on the cash The last to quit And the first to buy the beer Well, he's a knight in leather armor, still living by the cold. That's made him what he's been a hundred years. And he's still out there riding fences. Still makes his living with his rope. As long as there's a sunset, he'll keep riding for the brand. Just can't see him from the road As long as there's a sunset You'll keep riding for the brand You just can't see him from the road